If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to this live broadcast. We're now our number two here at TNT. Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for joining us in the second hour. Thank you, Freddie Ponton, our war correspondent, it's turned out to be, uh, from Europe. He's uh, giving us some great commentary and things to think about regarding the World Economic Forum this new naval coalition in the Red Sea, the United States has declared war on Yemen, or at least answer Allah, who's in control of uh, the northern territories, many of uh, the other territories in Yemen, and the country is effectively divided. We talked about that before. That's the plan. They wanted to turn it into the next Libya. They failed. The Houthis, as they call them, a.k.a. Ansar Allah, that's the correct name, they've just become more formidable as a fighting force uh, by waging war against uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States. They're trying to destroy Yemen. The Yemenis resisted. They managed to overcome famine, blockades, and now look at them. Now they're dictating the course of geopolitics. Isn't that amazing? One of the poorest countries in the world uh, has basically stood up to the United States and all of its partners uh, in defense of the defenseless Palestinian people in Gaza who are suffering a genocide right before our eyes, ladies and gentlemen. This is incredible times right now. Uh, I find the Yemeni story just to be fantastic. had a great conversation with some of the top journalists uh, in the Middle East over the weekend, including from Yemen. Um, and we'll be probably, maybe tomorrow, we'll be connecting uh, one of those journalists as well uh, for the program. So that's something to possibly look forward to uh, there. Uh, so anyway, moving on, we're going to probably get some reactions uh, and some updates on the Middle East, maybe a little bit on Davos with Basil Valentine, our intrepid correspondent, is going to join us on the live link uh, in just a few moments as we get him ready uh, and prepared. But uh, in the meantime, let's put the focus back on global geopolitics and a couple of things that are also coming out, drifting out of Davos, as is normally the case. Uh, Dmitry Medvedev is commenting on some of these globalist machinations. He's the former prime minister and president of Russia. He's pretty based, uh, actually. And now he's basically saying Ukrainian statehood poses a mortal danger to its own people. What on earth is Dmitry Medvedev talking about there? Another based comment from Medvedev, or is there actually something interesting, uh, some insight going on there? He said, the, the, the existence of any Ukraine on historical Russian lands, very controversial here, uh, will lead to a perpetual war. What's he talking about? Uh, historical Russian lands. That's pretty much all of Ukraine, um, but definitely Novorossiya, and that includes Odessa. We've talked about this a lot over the last couple of years, that uh, liberating Odessa from the Russian perspective uh, would be absolutely essential in securing the safety of the Crimean Peninsula, AKA the Black Sea Fleet, based in Sevastopol. It's been there since the time of Catherine the Great. So this wasn't always Ukraine. Uh, and that's a big point that people need to understand. So Medvedev's uh, offering up an interesting position here. He's saying, Ukrainian statehood poses a mortal danger for its own people. Very controversial position there, since its very existence creates the 100% probability of a new conflict with Moscow. 
So basically saying, as long as there's a Ukraine, there's a chance for war. And in a way, he's correct if you look at what's going on in Davos. And this is how we join the dots. This is what we do on this program. This, the, 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 the rhetoric out of Davos this week by von der Leyen, Stoltenberg, and all these other uh, ne'er-do-wells is that Ukraine needs to get into NATO. That's going to be the final sort of present for NATO's big anniversary coming up. They're going to give you announce Ukrainian membership, put it up for a vote. It's not going to get a unanimous vote. We know that. Look at Sweden. They're still kicking the can down the road. Turkey's not going to let them in. I don't know what Hungary's position is. Problematic. So if, if, if Sweden's problematic, what do you think Ukraine's going to be when their membership's up for a vote? Anyway, Medvedev's saying any Ukraine, he's saying, quote, any Ukraine poses a threat regardless of its political regime or leadership, according to Medvedev talking to his colleagues at the Russian Security Council, the presence of an independent state on historical Russian territories mm, will now be a perpetual reason for the resumption of hostilities. That's pretty heavy. It's too late, he said, no matter who is at the helm of this cancerous growth under the name of Ukraine, this will not add legitimacy to their rule or legitimacy to the country itself. And he put the country in single quotes. This is a this is actually a, a cold hard reality. Okay. There Ukraine is a country as a sort of identifiable nation state is a fairly new construct, uh, no matter what people say. Okay. That is historically Russia, Kiev and Rus. This is actually the birthplace of the Russian nation, if you really want to look at it uh objectively. So from a Moscow point of view. I can see where they're coming from here. And, you know, if you look at where the West has plowed its resources over the years uh, and its clandestine activity and so forth, they've really promoted this idea of Ukrainian nationalism. And they've always seen this as a potential uh, kind of bogey for the Soviet Union during the Cold War era uh, and activating some of these ultra-nationalist factions that did ally with Adolf Hitler in the Nazi regime during World War II, but there was always a potential for destabilization of what the CIA regarded as the soft underbelly of, uh, of the Soviet Empire, i.e. Uh, the soft underbelly of Russia, and they've really taken advantage of that. And if you look at what happened since the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's been a nonstop free-for-all um, either by Western financiers, especially George Soros, but also the United States intelligence apparatus, the British intelligence apparatus, uh, to sort of bolster this uh, Ukrainian nationalist uh, vein running through the country and really backing some of the worst fanatics. We're talking about actual Nazis, okay? Actual Nazis. And, and that's the reality of it. And now you're seeing this come to fruition. Post-Maidan, this war is all a culmination of all these policies that have been pushed and are funded by the West and then arming this country to the absolute teeth. And on the front line of their sort of military effort, you have the Azov Battalion, some of these hardcore Nazi battalions that are part and parcel of the Ukrainian defense forces. I mean... It's unbelievable that this would be allowed to happen uh, in Europe uh, in, in the 21st century, but yet this is how it is gone. So when you look at these comments by Medvedev, and you look at the map of Novorossiya historically, and you look at the ethnic uh, composition of the residents of these parts, especially Odessa, 
but the Donbass too, Crimea, this is Russia by all intents and purposes. The only thing that changed was during the Soviet Union, Ukraine was kind of formalized as a territory and became a country uh, on its own after the demise of the Soviet Union. So uh, a lot of problems baked into this uh, that unfortunately are inescapable, quite frankly. But uh, let's take a break uh, real quick with TNT, today's news talk, and we're going to connect on the other side. Basil Valentine, our intrepid correspondent this week, is going to join us for more updates on the Middle East and beyond. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back. TNT's Mark Morano. This just in. We have a new way that's proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways, streets, and other public areas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this appears to be the most effective way. We have a uh, we have a field shot, a correspondent on the scene. Let's go to clip four and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute. I don't want to see protests shut down. But obviously, when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that, you need to be dealt with. I thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old, and it's so easy for them to literally be groomed I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to the second hour of this live broadcast here on today's News Talk. Patrick Henningsen, your host here. Uh, joining us on the line right now, I want to bring in our intrepid correspondent this week, Basil Valentine. He's uh, out and about uh, in the world. Basil, thank you for joining us this week. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be with you. And hello to our listeners all around the world. 
So, Basil, I don't know if you managed to catch. I want to talk about uh, what's going on in Davos. The great and the good have come together, as they do every year, uh, to talk about climate change, to talk about the latest war, to support Ukraine, vaccine passports, censorship, all these things that keep all these people up at night. Let's talk about that. But I don't know if you have any updates right now uh, from the Middle East, uh, any breaking news uh, out of Palestine uh, with the Israeli situation there. Well, just to go back to Davos for a second, the Iranian foreign minister has been there today, but quite unusual, really, for an Iranian official to be at Davos, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, and he said that his country was targeting an Iranian terrorist group when it launched its strikes inside Pakistan, which the latter has called illegal and an unprovoked violation of its airspace. Pakistan's foreign ministry said two children were killed and three others were injured in the attack. And Islamabad has withdrawn its ambassador from Tehran in protest, while mm. also forbidding Iran's ambassador to return to Pakistan. So this is a, you know, a fairly significant escalation um, in the region, although a long way to the east of Gaza, of course. Um, Amir Abdullahian said Iran respected Pakistan's sovereignty but would not allow the country's national security to be compromised or played with. He said the moves have been a response to the Jaish al-Adl group's recent deadly attacks in Iran, and he may well be referring to the attack on the uh, ceremony at the grave of General Soleimani, Pakistan said, for their part, that Iran shared no information about the strike in advance. So that's where we are with that. Um, Bodleian, of course, the Empress of Europe, uh, striding about in Davos, but she was roundly condemned in the European Parliament this week. Firstly, in a particularly elegant speech by Claire Daly, the Irish uh, MEP, who coined the term uh, "Butcher Biden" uh, to go with genocide, Joe, and uh, she also slammed Bodleian. Bodleian, of course, also slammed by a Slovenian MEP who uh, pointed out the fact that she wasn't there in the chamber. She's supposed to spend three hours a month in the chamber uh, being grilled by and listening to members of the European Parliament, who are, after all, the only elected representatives in that whole ghastly Byzantine bureaucracy. Uh, they're the ones that are directly elected by the people of Europe. Von der Leyen is not. She is appointed by the Council of Ministers at the European Commission. So she can't even be bothered to turn up to, uh, to, to, to listen to anything. And it really highlights the democracy deficit that we have uh, around the world, particularly in Western Europe and North America, you know. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, she's calling it her mandate. She was boasting about since the beginning of my mandate, she said. It's the first time I've heard that word associated with an appointed position uh basil's very strange are the things that go on in brussels i i still don't understand the entity itself uh but uh, what i do see basil is that it is a single point of control for the united states and you look at the fact that uh, europe is now deploying a battle group uh to the red sea to assist the united states and uh anti-terror uh, activities and so forth uh, looks to me like it's just kind of a, 
a little bit of theater uh, from Brussels. I can't see what they're possibly going to achieve with that European naval group there. They're not going to fire any shots on anybody, and certainly they're not going to shoot back if fired upon. Uh, there'll probably be calls for them to come home very quickly if such a thing happened. But it's really, I think, to pad out this idea of a coalition. But uh, it, it, it seems to me, the whole Davos thing, Basil, it's just becoming more precarious. Their, their brand is so badly damaged that everybody's watching this confab every year and the subjects they're talking about, it seems like it's the elite basically saying, oh my God, what do we do now? The plebs aren't with us anymore. Like, what do we do? How can we shut down their speech? How can we herd them into this cul-de-sac? How can we uh, get them to buy into this proxy war? I mean, the whole thing seems to be there's some sort of, I don't know, group therapy session for the global elite. That's what it's becoming to me anyway. The only thing that von der Leyen said that was of any significance was she started talking once again about controlling the internet, about hate speech on uh, social media platforms and the need to corral it, which basically means uh, we're going to start censoring people on the internet if they depart from our official narratives. And our official narrative at the moment is that genocide is okay. So if you start slamming people for committing genocide, then perhaps you're, uh, you know, um, making hate speech. I mean, how inverted can you get? Um, Gutierrez has been there today. He's repeated his call for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, he said this is the only way to stem the suffering and prevent a spillover that could send the entire region up in flames. Uh, and of course, the European battle group going to the Red Sea is, as you say, designed to sort of at least give the appearance of a coalition. Um, you know, the lines between European Union defence and NATO are becoming increasingly blurred. Are they not? Are they not? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, with North Korean representatives in Moscow today, we're starting to see, heaven forbid, uh, the power blocks for a potential global conflict starting to harden up with China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, for starters, on the one hand, and uh, NATO and the United States and a few of their allies, uh, who some of whom change sides at regular intervals like Brazil and Argentina, um, on the other side. But uh, we must all hope that doesn't happen. I did. I did see the uh, the, the the comical uh, panel discussion with uh, J Jan Stoltenberg. Uh, you know, one of the most dynamic and exciting bureaucrats uh, ever to grace the stage. But um, it just really kind of stuttering and kind of umming and awing about like how the progress is going in Ukraine, who's winning, uh, and everybody seems to want to hear the good messaging, the good news. Hey, things are going great. They're clearly not. Um, he's having to put on a kind of a facade. Uh, for the global audience there at this uh, confab, all the billionaires lined up there. A lot of them have put, plowed money and investments into Ukraine. They're not going to see a penny of that coming back. Uh, so this whole thing is just becoming a massive liability for, for Washington, but I think increasingly so for Europe, because who can underwrite this thing? I mean, uh, and they're talking about reconstruction. You know, what reconstruction? Not in the Russian-held areas. And that's where all the damage is done. So, I mean, I don't know. These people are in, like, kind of fantasy land 
Basil. So I think Davos is just kind of painted itself into a corner of futility at this point. Uh, but your thoughts? Yeah, nobody's impressed. You know, they exist entirely in their own bubble, you know, infected with the most extraordinary arrogance more than anything else that seems to make them think they can play with other people's lives as if they were 13-year-olds playing a board game or something, you know, moving the pieces around and rolling the dice. Uh, they are no more mature than that, unfortunately, if anything less so. But I do want to pivot back to Gaza because, yeah. unfortunately, and this has been observed on the social media platforms today, um, CNN, the BBC, Sky, MSNBC, etc., all the usual suspects, have decided that there is no crisis there anymore. It has completely disappeared from the, disappeared from the news screens on these platforms. The fact that an average of 136 children are killed every day seems to be completely irrelevant. I think the idea is that uh, the propaganda is working such that they, if the ICJ come out with a guilty ruling as regards genocide, um, the corporate media want to be able to present this as coming out of the blue. Oh, look at that, you know. Wow, when have we heard about that? Well, this must be wrong. Look, we haven't, you know, we haven't seen any pictures. What they mean actually is they haven't shown any pictures. You know, mm. if they were covering the events in Gaza to the extent they do, they did, or even they still do, October the 7th, then, uh, you know, the Court of World Opinion, Public Opinion, and the mind the ICJ would be even more firmly made up in its mind. I mean, uh, I didn't actually see it because I don't watch it, but uh, an American commentator on X pointed out that earlier this week, one of the major networks, uh, devoted a large editorial segment in the news to an Israeli family who had been forced to move from their luxury home in southern Israel within the range of the Hamas rockets to a hotel. Uh, and how terribly inconvenient this was that these people were now living in a hotel and being catered to there and had had to leave their homes. And there's tremendous sort of hanging and appalling this is, and this is the result of the rocket fire and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, when you contrast that to uh, the utter devastation, the misery, the enormous human suffering in Gaza, 60% of all residential buildings destroyed, um, you know, mass starvation, disease, just absolute horror show. Uh, and you can see it if you go to Kuds and follow the uh, to X and follow the Kuds News Network, people like that. Uh, it really is absolutely despicable. Now, asked where, at Davos whether Jewish lives are more valuable than Palestinian uh, lives, given the asymmetry in the casualties, Tony Blinken said no. Period. Mm. And yet, his actions would appear to be very, very different. I mean, he feigns this sort of terrible concern. Um, he said today, the suffering among innocent men, women and children breaks my heart. But at the same time, he has even gone as far as bypassing Congress in order to continue the supply of ammunition. So, you know, which is it, Tony? Um, meanwhile, the Senate, of course, rejected Bernie Sanders' amendment by 76 to 12, I think, um, to condition aid to Israel on humanitarian 
grounds. In other words, if they violate humanitarian law, then the aid is what curtailed. So that was comprehensively defeated in the Senate, basically continuing uh, to give Israel the green light for war crimes. So we've really got to get a guilty verdict and an injunction from the ICJ or this horror is set to continue. You know, definitely need, at least need the emergency injunction because um, yes. already we're seeing some of the, the, the Arab League basically, re, um, they'll re regard that as as a, a, a decision that they can line up behind. Um, we've already seen statements from various Arab countries there. So it is actually very pivotal uh, how this judgment's going to come down, even in the interim, uh, Basil. But as you said uh, previously, when we discussed this, the final verdict could take years, as it has in past cases. But that's not what really matters. What matters is immediate re relief, some kind of international declaration that a ceasefire must happen now. Um, that's what's actually needed. And I think they're very close to it. I think Basel, I don't know if you agree, I think they're going to uh, uh, recommend and call for a ceasefire. And I think that's going to happen uh, by the end of the week. That's my, that's well, my hope, read on it. What do you right. think? Well, I hope you're right. Uh, John Mearsheimer, uh, the American scholar, has pointed out that the threshold of evidence needed to uh, bring about an injunction is much lower than the one that would be required in a few years time for proving genocide actually happened. The whole point of this genocide convention is to prevent genocide from happening now or in the immediate future. So the court only needs to be convinced that there's a likelihood of it, uh, which, you know, if they're rational human beings, they will come to that conclusion without too much hesitation. Blinken has said that he does feel, and I quote, a fierce urgency to make progress towards peace in the Middle East region, but that Israel needs to be integrated and feel secure. And here we are. There must also be a pathway to a Palestinian state. Now, the key thing there is pathway, because there's been a pathway for 75 years, but it's never happened. So Blinken is just simply trying to do what every previous Secretary of State has done, is buy some time. Now, interestingly enough, Wang Li, the Chinese foreign minister, called for an international peace conference at the end of this horror show, um, a conference that will lead to the establishment of a Palestinian state with outcomes that are binding on all parties. So he obviously hasn't been paying any attention to what uh, Israeli politicians are saying. I mean, the idea, no. it's a wonderful idea, don't get me wrong, that there could be an international peace conference which results in a permanent settlement in the Middle East and the, and a, the establishment of an independent Palestinian state. That's a fabulous idea. But I think the chances of it happening are, well, I think I've got more chances of winning a million pounds at Cheltenham this spring. Uh-oh, the, the, the multiplier. Is the multiplier on? That's another discussion. We'll talk about the horses later, Basil. Listen, Basil Valentine, our intrepid correspondent, thank you for these updates. We really appreciate it. Keep a close eye on all these stories. Basil is. Follow him on Twitter, says underscore Basil on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. Thank you very much for joining us on TNT. Mr. Valentine. Thank you, Patrick. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Let's take a break right now with the network today's news talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. On the other side, we're going to talk crypto finance with Blake Lovewell. Looking forward to that. Is there going to be an economic collapse in February? Is there going to be a market crash? A lot of people are talking about it. Let's find out if those rumors are more than just rumors on the other side. Stay right there.
De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. It's the El Nino season. That was not really an El Nino season for much of Australia. We've had very different weather than what you'd normally be thinking happens during El Nino, and there is a reason for that. The Southern Oscillation Index, which is the longest running atmospheric measurement of the El Nino, goes all the way back to the 1800s when someone decided that we would take the standard deviation of pressure between Darwin and Tahiti and observe what the weather would do. That has not been in El Nino category for the last three months. The 90 day is actually out of that category and that has never happened, November, December, January, when there is a strong El Nino in the sea surface temperatures in the eastern part of the Pacific Ocean. And one of the things that's going on is the pressures are very low across Australia into Indonesia and that is creating more than the normal amount of easterly winds in the Pacific, more like a La Nina. And we actually have a tropical disturbance over northern Australia that will be heading west over the next few days. But we're going to see a big change in this. By the time we get to February 1st, high pressure is going to build all across Australia and dominate during the month of February. And what that means is February should be, for February, a relatively average El Nino month. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. From weather and traffic reports to news of political developments, we turn to journalists for the information we need to live our daily lives. Journalists around the world providing news that is essential for democracy, for personal freedom, and for safety and stability. Yet their ability to report freely and safely is under attack like never before. So many journalists are paying with their lives. They face exponential risks and they've already paid a heavy toll. Death threats, online harassment, and physical attacks are becoming a daily experience of journalists in all countries. We just want people to be safe, to be able to get our readers the information that they need to make informed decisions. They checked my phone and realized that it was Pegasus. I feel myself like I'm naked at the street. These charges were politicized from the start. Facts win. Truth wins. Justice wins. C'est énorme pour moi d'être là, d'être libre. Surtout que je m'y attendais pas du tout. Stand with the free press. Stand with journalists whose reporting won't be silenced. Press freedom is your freedom. political commentator and investigative journalist. You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. We're in the final segment of the final hour of this live broadcast. We'll be joined by Blake Lovewell uh, in just a moment, uh, just getting him uh, connected here on the back line. But uh, before we get to Blake and start talking about the global economy, finance, crypto, and all of that exciting uh, stuff because uh, people are worried about what's in their wallet, trust me. Inflation hasn't gone away. We'll talk about that as well. There's another issue that, that I think is going to rear its head 
in 2024. Um, it's already become a major issue in the U.S. Uh, with the southern border being opened. Uh, the Democrats have an open border policy. In other words, uh, whatever, how many hundreds of thousands, millions of people want to just flood over the southern border, that's fine with the Biden administration, the Democratic Party. No problem. They, they, they totally back that policy uh, because to them, that's voters. Uh, they want to turn Texas blue and therefore secure the presidency uh, in perpetuity forever. In fact, unless California secedes uh, from the union. And there's a lot of people that wouldn't mind if that happened. Uh, trust me, especially with the current regime in charge there who might end up being the next president, by the way, Gavin Newsom. But uh, that aside, the issue of immigration, very emotive. It's a hot-button election issue. I mean, every single pollster, uh, any political consultant will tell you it's one of those emotional issues uh, that when it's weaponized during an election cycle, it can literally move votes. It certainly did during Brexit, uh, and it does in the United States right now, 2024 election. It's going to be one of the main issues. Um, so I think that's going to be one of the sort of contrasting issues there uh, between the Republican candidate, uh, Donald Trump, and everybody else. I don't even know where Nikki Haley stands on immigration. She hardly talks about it. She's not really in the race, but um, they'll keep her in for a while. At least uh, in the EU, though, the experts now, think tanks, are they're projecting record number of immigrants, a migrant surge in Europe for 2024. Yep. So the, the factors that are feeding into this, of course, uh, the war in Gaza, uh, other wars and skirmishes in the Sahel region, uh, Sudan, certainly the destabilization in Sudan, that's massive as well. We've got a war breaking out between Ethiopia and Somalia. This is a CIA-engineered conflict, folks. The prize here is Somaliland. So this territory, the British have their best people on the project. Trust us. The Americans and the British, very active in Somaliland. Lots of interests there. British elites have oil interests there. Uh, but really, it's about control of the Gulf of Aden. Look at what's happening right now in the Babo Mendeb Straits. And then you'll understand why this whole region has been re-sculpted over the last 20 years. More than any other place on the planet, there are more countries have been created, more borders have been changed. It's to gain control over this key waterway. This is a long-term Anglo-American globalist project. Understand that. Everything you've seen, including the war in Yemen, the, uh, the, the the wars in, in Eritrea, Ethiopia, the breakup of Ethiopia, taking its coastline away, all of this is to design this choke point here and eventually get control of it. Uh, and the West want to control it because they don't want the Chinese to control it. That's the, the, the basics there. But the factors feeding into European migrant surges are going to be the war, or wars in plural. Um, there's also elections. There's the Trump administration, what's their policy going to be like? Is this going to cause a ripple effect in Europe uh, whereby uh, migrants will see this as their last chance to get in before all these various right-wing governments come into power uh, right across Europe? That's a big question. So immigration in the EU in 2024 will reach record levels. Previous record levels for the migrant surges was 2016. And this is an Austrian-banked uh Austrian-based think tank, the Center for Migration Policy and Development, worth looking at their 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 white papers uh, on this issue. It's got some good statistics. We're looking at the data here. It's very impressive how they've compi compiled this report. 
and opposition parties across Europe are threatening to crack down on illegal rivals. So this is why you're seeing a massive surge to the U.S. southern border, because the anticipation is looking at the polls that if Donald Trump is elected, um, that's going to be an end to the open border policy. So obviously the coyotes, organized crime syndicates, uh, the NGOs, the various charities, Catholic charities, and all these people that are involved in helping this process of bringing hundreds of thousands or millions of people from Central America, South America, and beyond through the U.S. southern border, they're looking at this as maybe their last shot the next 12 months. So this, this is just going to heat up to a level that is just going to be unbearable, I think, by the summer. Uh, no pun intended. And the same in Europe here. And the data is, doesn't lie on this. More than a million people claimed asylum uh, in the EU last year. Okay, so this think tank has laid out all the data on this. Uh, they put this out in a press release. I think it's important too, especially with some key European election cycles uh, coming up this year. But when all people who illegally entered are added, the total suggests 3.5 million people have migrated to the EU in 2023. That might sound like a lot, uh, but if you add that to the sort of the overall population, anyone's guesstimation, the overall population of Europe, whether you include Britain or not in that, I think it's not just the EU. I think you kind of have to include Britain. You kind of have to include Britain in there. So uh, I, I don't think that's a significant amount of people that's going to shock Europe, but year in on year out, certainly it's going to put pressure, uh, pressure on a lot of things, including entry-level labor market and things like this, not to mention social and political tension that's going to be built up as a result of that. So anyway, this is worth looking at. Again, I'm going to repeat this report, the International Center for Migration Policy Development. They're based in Austria. This is one of the best reports we've seen on this so i'm going to say people go and check this out and, uh, as well as a number of other surveys here this is going to shape the european political scene over the next couple of years and as it has and will continue to also shape u.s politics um, as well so we'll talk more about that very hot button very emotive issue immigration we'll be covering it more this year as well let's bring on to the line though let's talk about economic matters financial matters matters to do with your savings your inflation your cryptocurrency blake lovewell joining us on the live link right now blake how are you hey blake uh, hey patrick i'm blake nice to see you um yeah uh, i'm doing really well um despite these uh, hard economic times i think most of us are feeling um especially in january which is already a hard month um yeah, despite that, still feeling good. Definitely taking my vitamin D because I'm up here in the uh, latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, I'd recommend that everyone uh, at least looks into that. Uh, remember, that was one of the big um, no-nos mentioning vitamin D in 2020. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, just trying to keep it keep it real and uh, looking forward to spring. What's what, what what's the February outlook looking like, Blake? Because everybody's kind of been you know, projecting, foreshadowing this this stock market crash, this market correction. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone's saying it's imminent. The the tide is building up. The size of the wave is immense. We're talking about debt. We're talking about inflation. We're talking about yeah. instabilities in the system, the fundamentals. And everyone's yeah. saying it's going to be February or the spring. What are you seeing on this? 
Yeah, uh, you mentioned instabilities. Well, the system is kind of based on that instability. Um, and then the central bank's uh, role is to sort of play the uh, the stabilizer. Um, I also liken them to the fat controller uh, from Thomas the Tank Engine, um, you know, trying to pretend like they're in charge of anything. But really, uh, you know, the system can run itself. But uh, maybe that's the latent anarchist in me. Um now it's hard to say whether whether or not there'll be a stock market crash. That kind of thing is beyond uh, the event horizon. It's just just out of our sight uh, um, of our prediction. Um, you can always give odds, and you know the odds are definitely um, moving towards uh, the unstable end and towards pointing towards something of a, a stock market crash. Stock market crash, though, is really more of a symptom uh, of a wider economic problem. Um, the wider economic problem being, uh, I would say, mismanagement. Of the economy um when you have centrally controlled economies uh you know it's not just communist china um or you know uh, uh neoliberal japan it's also the usa is a centrally controlled economy uh the u.s treasure treasury is the uh government arm which dispenses uh money and fiscal policy and then you have the federal reserve this kind of quasi private organization that uh prints the money um and you know holds reserves of how much gold we don't know uh ron paul has been asking for a long while um and so i'd say when you have problems with uh central i'd say one of the kind of native characteristics of central control is that they can't control everything um and when you get that um uh when that comes to a head is when you have these economic crises we had it in 2008 where um the uh lack of regulation i'm not saying regulation is good but we're in a heavily regulated system but certain areas were not regulated such as um sub subprime mortgage lending and also derivatives um which are kind of bundles of um stocks and shares uh, to be speculated on um and those weren't regulated properly because there's a massive financial incentive for um profit making in um those kind of financial uh you know big baddies your jp morgans and that they were making far too much money and then you know they're able to bribe essentially by lobbying the governments um to allow that to happen and then uh when the problems happen that um uh gets socialized the the resolution or it wasn't even a resolution but in 08 um was um quantitative easing um uh, yeah, so quantitative easing um, was was where um, you, do you remember Barack Obama just after Bush went. Uh, Barack Obama came in and he came in with the the bazookas, uh, the money printing bazookas, um, you know, and threw a load of cash at the economy, and that kicked the can down the road. Um, stimulus. Really it's did. called it's it's called a stimulus, Blake. To the stimulate, stimulus, yeah, stim, stimulate everybody, stimulate our bank accounts and stuff. It didn't. It, it stimulated inflation, is what it did. Yeah, it's stimulated. Well, for a short while, it did stimulate inflation, but you know, it's it's kind of like a a, a quick fix. Um, but you know, the the economy's now um, addicted to that stimulus or stimulation, and um, it can't get off that. It basically really um, needs more and more. Uh, kind of its uh, tolerance has grown. It's it's an addict personality. Um, the economy's not a bad thing. It's not a person, but um, the way that this uh, stimulus works is that it's a short term fix or well, it's not even a fix they like to call it a fix um 
So after that, we had, you know, a long period of very low interest rates to try and, um, you know, uh, cool off that uh, uh, hyperinflation that, that's kind of been imminent ever since 2008. When when you print uh, billions up to up to the trillions um, that's washing around the economy, nobody has a real um, ability to uh, find a market value or a market price for things. Um, now, everybody uh, just tries to look at Fed policy and, and gauge what's going to happen um, based on what Jerome Powell or what Greenspan was back in the day uh, saying, um, which isn't a very healthy way for an economy to work and a natural economy, a sort of free market type of way. I'm not going to try and bash the free market uh, uh, button too hard here, but, um, you know, uh, systems of economics kind of work by their own natural rules, uh, sort of like an ecosystem. Um, And if you interfere too heavily in that, you can't uh, control the outcomes, no matter how much the king wishes he could uh, control every aspect of our lives they can't um and so now we're kind of really reaping the uh you know the opposite of the benefits the uh problems of uh, that kind of uh policy of uh central control uh they pretended like they knew what they were doing um well they did know what they were doing they were funneling money into um already uh fat pockets uh private pockets and have been doing so for about 20 years now um, but we're seeing signals coming out of the Federal Reserve, uh, the kind of king amongst all of the central banks, that they're going to be pivoting back from their quantitative tightening to quantitative easing again. They're going to start printing more um, currency um, and buying up assets to try and um, stimulate the economy once again. But for a long time, um, they've they've tried that and it didn't really work uh, in the structure of the economy. So, um, yeah, these these kind of signals are kind of a... Uh, um sort of sneaking out of the federal reserve through their uh you know their usual back alleys um but i think in a couple of months we're going to see this pivot to quantitative easing and that's going to try and bring the inflation numbers down that's going to look good for you know election time and stuff like that all it's going to do really is be this massive transfer of wealth uh once again um and what it's doing is sucking value out of everybody's currencies and mm. giving it to the few people who have large amounts of property, liquid assets, and so on. Um, so as you mentioned it right there in your intro um, about cryptocurrency, that's definitely one um, aspect that's not yet fully in control. We can have a debate about um, EFTs, we can have a debate about Blockstream, but um, you know these kind of little uh, uh, physical uh, gold getting out of the system, those are certain little ways that um, you or I could uh, have our own um, mini uh, kingdoms outside of the central controllers who wish to control everything. Yeah. So the 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 in, during the election cycle, certainly Donald Trump's big on the stock market. So it's for him, it's all about the S and P. It's all about the Dow Jones. It's all about the top one hundred. Those big American companies. How are they doing? What are the dividends like? Uh, but a lot of people will accept Blake that the stock market is hugely overvalued, not just mm. because of all the sort of the reams of buybacks and federal interventions to sort of prop that thing up um, is becoming less and less, uh, I think, relevant in terms of gauging real value in the economy. You talked about that short-term heroin injection for the for mm-hmm. the housing market, for instance, a cheap mm-hmm. trick in any election year. Gas prices are being, you know, they're coming down as well. That's definitely the Biden White House working hard yeah. behind the scenes, I think, to try to create some kind of a situation there. But uh, at the yeah. end of the day, these fu- the, these aren't going to, I think, affect the fundamentals. Fundamentals are, um, Blake, that we do have this quantitative easing. 
uh, issue that um, is just going to, I think, get progressively worse. The big issue in in America, Blake, is inflation. Mm-hmm. It's out of control. Mm-hmm. It's literally out. It's it's way out of control. So mm-hmm. what what can we do? What can the individual do uh, in order to protect themselves? from this inflationary environment because i don't see it going away blake maybe if trump gets elected and some shock therapy maybe might take a year but well, if it's yeah. if it's not going away what what can you do to protect well, the value yeah, of, of your savings you say shock therapy and it's, it's very um vital people know what that kind of thing is the same the same policies that uh, the usa pursued in um iraq the shock doctrine naomi klein's uh, big book describing the uh the kind of regime change uh you know a big bang a big event you know a 9-11 or whatever it may be and that allows uh your um you know uh, massive law changes that wouldn't usually be allowed um we had the same thing with a uh, alleged novel virus which allowed um you know the complete rewriting of global constitutions um you know people are talking about disease x it could be this massive cyber attack that um you know cyber reason keep trying to predict that's going to happen how do they know it's going to happen well maybe the same people are involved in um, predicting as creating it um, is definitely a big business um, if you can sell the fear. Um, so whatever it may be, uh, uh, there's going to be events which um, powerful groups or actors seek to uh, harness to control people, to to uh, um, uh, grow their control over you. Um, but as individuals, it's kind of upon us to uh, not fall for the fear um we are rational actors we are able to make our own decisions um so we should uh you know believe in ourselves believe in our communities our friends and families um you know and in economic terms it would be believe in yeah uh your local farmers or suppliers or um you know what you can see with your eyes and touch with your hands those things are believable and they're in the real world um if we get too lost in this heady world of ideas um or you know or headlines and stuff like that then um you kind of get lost and and more are more able to be manipulated and you know we we are on a digital medium now um but some of uh the life should go on in the real world i think there's definitely a place for what we're doing now as uh for exposing truth and you know uh, uh your show's definitely one for that where people should tune in um but then there's there's something to be said for getting out in the real world and having kind of contact so you can um draw your own conclusions from multiple different points of interest so um being able to be um, self-sufficient in um, your own mind, um, uh, uh, escape from the fear is is kind of one good step. As I mentioned before, something like um, cryptocurrencies or physical precious metals, any asset you think will hold value. I'm not saying start hoarding rice, but having a um, you know a, a sort of a bit of a stock, you know, might be um, a good idea. Or having stuff um, you know backed up. You don't have to be a mega prepper. I know we've uh, had the prepper conversation before. And it's always prudent to have um, uh, some reserves, be they um, cash, be they, um, you know, food, water or even just plans. You know, having those plans makes you feel more secure and it makes you less vulnerable to being fear controlled. Uh, similarly, as I mentioned, the central banks want total control. They want uh, because they are failing to control the economy. They think they just need more control. So they want to introduce the central bank digital currency um, to manage your every movement, your every interaction, your every transaction action um don't fall for that even if it's more convenient or more free um you know sometimes the 
harder route is the better one. Um, I definitely look back to the period of rugged individualism in America, um, where the silver dollar was the reigning currency. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that offers a kind of a, an interesting uh allegory there i'm not saying it was a perfect system there was definitely some colonialism and uh you know different crime going on and stuff like that but um it definitely offers you you know a kind of model whereby uh real currencies uh can take what, hold and so yeah. what's the be- what's the best international uh uh hard money um that's most easily liquid and transferable do you recommend uh silver dollars or uh or in in Britain, I know you've got a a different with the Queen on it, but or yeah. or or British sovereigns versus Liberty dollars mm. uh, in terms well, in terms of liquidity. What would you recommend for gold? For gold, well, for gold, um, collectible coins uh, are always you know tax free and um, you know small enough you can fit in your pocket and transact with. If they've got a stamp on them, you can identify them. If you have some knowledge of the sphere, but. Um, when you said that, my mind instantly jumped to cryptocurrencies uh, for international um, moving value internationally. You can go through an airport, you can be frisked, but you can have the seed phrase for a, a wallet in your head and they can't catch that. Um, if you've got loads of gold coins on you, you know, I've traveled internationally recently and that you have to sign a declaration that says I'm not carrying more than, say, $10,000 worth of currency. And if you do that and they catch you, they can take that currency because governments are in the game of um, taking things from you if if you're not doing what you're told. Um, but with um, cryptocurrency, we've, we've been given this technology whereby you can um, uh, hold an asset in your own head, uh, which I don't believe has ever happened before other than, you know, having knowledge uh, and skills to do things you know the skills to fix things or fix an engine or start an engine or um, other such skills that you can transfer but this is um, definitely a way despite all of its imperfections despite its volatility and um, you know there are still high transaction fees in bitcoin and ethereum there are other cryptocurrencies but they have their own foibles too Um, but i think as the system um, grows um, that will be the best way to transfer wealth internationally but within a community precious metals and other assets you know it's, it's about being uh, nimble and it's about being wise and it's about doing your own research and and being independent um because yeah if you fall into the herd that's when you're going to be culled mm. yes indeed indeed blake lovewell thank you for that sound advice i'm sure that'll be useful let's have more of these conversations in the weeks to come it's going to become more and more evident as the news comes out as we start to see the moves in the market and in crypto precious metals and all these other things inflation all important topics of discussion thank you for joining us on tnt this week blake absolute pleasure see you again there soon. he goes ladies and gentlemen and also a big thank you to basil valentine our intrepid correspondent and freddie ponton our european correspondent we've got a fantastic team here at the patrick kennison show and we've got a better audience thank you guys for tuning in i'll see you same time same place tomorrow be there we got a lot coming up. Take care.